Lord, we are grateful that you gather us in your name, that you give us a mission, that you have called us to be a people distinct and set apart, and that you have given us a faith. We ask, Lord, that you would uh, invigorate our faith, that you would stir our hearts to love you both in word and deed. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Some of y'all will know that this is a a particular season of the year. Uh, This is not no season, but it's actually called ordinary time. And ordinary time in the church calendar is that period of time between, uh, between Pentecost and Advent, and there are no major festivals to, to celebrate, but it is a time that is set apart in some ways for, for growth. It's a time for us to um, return to, to the fundamentals, as it were. And so I'd like to talk about some of those fundamentals. Fundamentalism is, for the most part, not one of those words that you hope anyone ever says about you. Uh, But in its truest form, in fact, fundamentalism is simply about focusing on the fundamentals, the things that are most important, most core, most essential. It's like a uh, a tennis player working on their forehand or backhand over and over again, uh, preparing to to be ready for any uh, uh, match or game. So in this way, I would like to be called a fundamentalist today, and I hope that you will all join me as fundamentalists as we focus on some of the fundamentals of the Christian faith that Paul presents to us in the gospel, or or, excuse me, in uh, his letter to the Romans. The two that I'd like to focus on shortly are are, uh, righteousness, it's a word that gets forgotten, and then belief, such simple Christian terms but there's so much more. Righteousness, I think, often is one of those words that we can um, mix up with archaic assumptions about um, being good or being, um, being holy. And then likewise, I think belief can sometimes simply be limited to this realm of, of cognitive assent or maybe it means a kind of vague conviction But in Paul's letter to the Romans, he doesn't mean any of those things. He doesn't mean either of those things. And of these two, I I think that probably the word righteousness is the more overlooked. It's the word that we we tend to fail to recognize its sweetness. So I'll begin with that. Righteousness, as you may know, is a a word that Paul is using in this this Romans reading that is really drawing from an Old Testament word. Uh, righteousness is a similar root in Greek to the word justification. Justification is the action of making someone righteous. But both of these words are actually pulling from an older heritage that was uh, core to, the, to Jewish rite and practice, to, to ritualistic um, uh, ways of observing the law. And uh, if we, we think back on these words, really they make most sense in the context of, of Exodus in Deuteronomy, when the law is given. And so there is this moral element to the word righteousness, but it also involves the, the food laws, it involves the cleanliness laws, and involves the whole cultic element of purification and sacrifice. And so it is this holistic state of being. It's, again, not simply about being good, but it has to do, at its very core, with being in the presence of God. The Jews knew this well, 
you couldn't simply walk into the presence of God, but God was holy. He was other, and he demanded that we observe his otherness and to prepare to meet him. So on a fundamental level, again, righteousness is about being with God. It's about being with God. Maybe it's a, a little bit like this. Um, again, I have to give Colin credit here. He, he helped me to think of this. I think he used it in a sermon a couple weeks ago. Um, sorry, Colin. But the, the illustration is, is that of a, um, a romantic involvement. So let's say you have uh, fallen in love with someone. You've admired them from far off. Maybe you've gotten to know them a little bit. And then uh, by some stroke of goodwill from the Lord, you've managed to get a date. So you've got a date with this person. Now, I promise you the one thing that you are definitely going to do on the day of the date is get ready. You're not going to do nothing. You are going to probably take a shower. You'll, you'll hopefully take a shower. You'll probably uh, find some clothes that you, you feel like most represent you, that, that represent you best, and maybe they um, f- give you a flattering image. Maybe you'll go out and you'll buy flowers, but you'll prepare. And then when you actually meet up for this date, the conversation will take on a a particular tone. It'll take on a particular quality. You'll be kind to the person. You'll hopefully be a little cautious of the words that you use. You you will ask that person questions about themselves. You know, what do you like? What do you do? You'll try and find out who they are. And then there is one thing that you will not do. I hope you'll not do. And it's talk about how great a date you had with someone else the night before, right? You'll never do that. And so you see, this is even just a little bit like righteousness. There's the moral element. Don't talk about that date. There's the cultic element. You got to get the flowers. There is uh, even the cleanliness part, which we again hope for. So you see, righteousness, it is not just about observance. It is not just about being good It's about preparing to be with God. It's about that condition in which you can be with God who is absolutely holy and other. And the reason that Israel wanted this righteousness for so, so many years is because they knew well that God had made them, that God had rescued them, that God had had given a place, a home to them, and that he loved them. And so they longed for righteousness. Being in a state of righteousness reminds me a little bit, this is a stretch here, so forgive me, of that one season uh, in 1993 where Michael Jackson uh, retired. Y'all remember this? Sorry, Michael Jordan, good grief. (laughs) Y'all are are a patient crowd. Good thing this isn't being filmed. it's, it's like that season where, where MJ retires. So uh, Jordan decides his dad has died. It's really tragic. He, he, he quits the NBA, and then he pursues um, the, a, a baseball career. And as it turns out, Jordan is not awesome at baseball. He has this incredible work ethic. He actually does have some, some good streaks there, but he, he's not an incredibly skilled baseball player. And so he'd always longed to to play baseball. He loved baseball. And in the interview that I was watching about Michael Jordan, there's this moment where uh, 
the interviewer brings up an article from Sports Illustrated where Jordan is on the cover and it basically just, just drags him under the bus. What's this guy doing playing baseball? So the interviewer says, did you think that was a fair article? And Jordan says, you know, frankly, I didn't, didn't think it was fair, but to be honest, I uh, asked my dad about this before I quit and before he died. He said, son, if, if you want to do it, you need to do it. And he said, so you know what? My father said to do it, and I don't really care what anybody else thinks. Righteousness is just a little bit like that. It's being in such an integrated relationship, a state of being, of intimacy with God the Father, a place of such trust that nothing else matters. What everybody else says, it doesn't matter. Granted, we're not all Michael Jordan, so hopefully you can imagine what it might be like. We all long for righteousness, in other words. We long to be in that stable place. But how do we get it? Well, the Romans passage tells us. Romans 10 begins, in fact, by distinguishing between these two kinds of righteousness. The first one, it says, is is God's righteousness. And the second one is self-righteousness. And Paul is essentially saying here that there is this prerequisite for taking on righteousness. And, And it's this. The righteousness that you pursue cannot be your own standard of righteousness. You get what I'm saying? The the rules to the game cannot be rules that you make up because that will inevitably simply promise your own success. You can't seek your own independent, self-verifiable version of righteousness before God. Otherwise, it will always only ever be just for you. You follow what I mean? It's a righteousness that only takes into account your own standards. And in this way, it's not simply about being pompous or being self-righteousness, self-righteous in some traditional sense. It's about skewing the books in your favor, constructing, constructing your own sort of legal demands in such a way that you always, always come out on top. And you see this in people's lives, right? I've seen it in my own heart. The, the simple phrase, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. Well, of course, I'm a pretty good person. If I measure myself by my own standards, I'll always come out on top. Self-righteousness, you see, is always about maintaining that version of righteousness that fits you. But that's not the righteousness that Paul wants us to seek. Paul wants us to seek God's righteousness. He says it's not only more satisfying, but it is theirs is yours for the taking. It's there for you. Listen to this, Romans 10, 6 to 9. This is an incredible passage. You would do well to read it again, perhaps memorize the latter portion of it. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. You'll be made righteous. 
See, the righteousness based on faith says the word is already near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. God's righteousness is already made absolutely clear in the life of Jesus, the perfect image of the invisible God. There is no mystery to this righteousness because it is made evident in who Jesus is and it has been brought close to you in human form, Jesus himself. And when you look at the righteousness of Jesus, you'll actually see something that is totally different than self-righteousness. It is a complete reversal of self-righteousness. It is so other and unself-interested. It is so absolutely self-emptying and good that there is, in fact, only one response. And it's just what we see in the gospel reading. Y'all remember this? There's the part where the disciples, they're in the boat, They know who Jesus is. They've been with him. They've seen his miracles. They've seen his mercy. They've seen his love for them. They've seen his wonders. And then they see Jesus walking across the waves and Peter goes out to meet him. Jesus calls him. This remarkable moment, Peter walking on waves. And then they come back. They get back in the boat. And do you remember what they do? It says they worship. They worshiped and then they proclaimed, truly, you are the son of God. And that's key. That's it. When you look at the righteousness of Jesus, you're drawn to worship. You're drawn to worship and proclamation. That's how you get it. So when we look at this pattern, we actually see it working the whole way through on Romans 10, particularly in Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Righteousness is yours. That is, if you see Jesus' true self, if you see and believe that he's the bearer of God's righteousness, that he is Lord, then you're saved and you will be given his righteousness for you and allowed to enter into the presence of God. And it's those two movements that are most key. Belief in your heart and confession with your mouth. Paul is clear here. You cannot separate these two things, but true belief, if we're returning to the fundamentals, it requires both. Both. St. Augustine once wrote on this very passage, he said, did not almost all those who who disowned Christ in the presence of their persecutors keep in their hearts what they believed about him. Yet, for not making with their mouth profession of faith unto salvation, they perished, except those who repented and lived again. You see what he means? He says that you can believe in your heart, just like the apostles who believed in Jesus, who'd been with Jesus, and then at his crucifixion denied him. They believed in their heart, but they would not believe with their mouth. And I think I feel that way sometimes myself. I believe in my heart, but when push comes to shove, there's some awkward moment. I'm in some social scenario where it doesn't behoove me to be a man in a collar. I won't witness with my mouth. And I would imagine you've done the same before too, if you're anything like me. But that's only half the story. He also says you have to believe in your heart. And I think plenty of us can resonate with this as well. Times where you know how to walk the walk and talk the talk, to speak Christian with Christian friends and brothers and sisters. And then push comes to shove and you actually have to believe something. In order to endure some scenario or hope in something unseen, you have to believe in your heart. But you don't. 
because you need the other half. You need belief in your heart and belief in your word, and they have to go together. It's a little bit, I think, like coming up on your wedding day to say wedding vows. There's obviously the the heartfelt moment of the doors being opened, the bride coming down, belief in the heart is all there. I'll love you forever. But it also has to be in word. It's the vows that make it durable, right? It's heart and word. And if you are either one of those today, if you are feeling weak in heart or weak in word, I would encourage you to come to this service, the next half of the service, and be encouraged by two things. First one is, you can't come up to the table, but we will bring out communion to you. When you receive, pray to the Lord that he would witness to your heart, that your heart would become on fire for him, that belief would become real, that it would be settled deep into you. And then in just a few minutes, when we say the creed, these old words passed down from generation to generation, I challenge you, don't think of them as a simple practice of de rigueur recitation. Imagine yourself witnessing in front of a stand, proclaiming the thing that your life is most about. Do both of those today and ask the Lord in faith to give you belief and he will make you righteous. He promises that he will do it. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.